This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon. Happy Monday, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. A lot we'll get to over the course of this hour, including the announcement today of the public inquiry to review the circumstances that led to the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act back in February, whether that was a justifiable decision by the federal government. We'll talk more about that after 2.30. A few other things we'll get to on what's turning out to be a busy and eventful Monday afternoon. I want to begin, though, at the top in this hour with some conversation around the government's uh, plans to or attempts to more or less try to regulate the Internet. And that's come in a few different forms. There was the original Bill C-10, which is back as Bill C-11, to try to apply the, the Broadcasting Act. Uh, to the internet, to content being generated by big tech and social media companies. There's also now the attempt to get those uh, big tech and social media companies to pay up for linking to uh, content created by Canadian news agencies. And then there's the attempt to deal with so-called online harms. Now, this was something that was announced uh, just ahead of last year's federal election. The government launched a consultation As a part of that. But the uh, most of what they received was never publicly released, or at least the government refused to release it. But some of those submissions have been obtained now. University of Ottawa law professor Michael Geist obtained the submissions through an access to information request and posted the documents online last week. And there was a significant amount of blowback against these plans, including notably Twitter Canada warning that uh, these plans uh, would be comparable to what we see in authoritarian countries like North Korea and China. What also stood out was the National Council of Canadian Muslims warning that the government's plans, quote, could inadvertently result in one of the most significant assaults on marginalized and racialized communities in years. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about the significance uh, of this uh, blowback and what it tells us about the government's plans. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, the aforementioned Dr. Michael Geist, uh, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. Also, as mentioned, a law professor at the University of Ottawa. More at his website, michaelgeist.ca. Dr. Geist, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So what does it take uh, a professor uh, of law in Canada having to go through the access to information uh, process just to find out what the government heard in its own consultation process. Yeah, no, that's a fair question, and I must admit the, the entire episode has left me pretty befuddled. I didn't quite understand why the government was taking the position that it was. It seems to me that if you launch a public consultation, it, it's pretty reasonable to adopt the position that people that and companies and organizations that submit as part of that consultation their views should have the expectation that those submissions will be made public. 
after all. It's a public consultation, and the government is giving organizations the opportunity to try to influence policy. It's a quid pro quo, it seems to me, to say that that information is going to be made available. And that's, in fairness, how most consultations seem to run. But for whatever reason, in this instance, government and the Canadian Heritage Minister, Pablo Rodriguez, took the position that they would not release any of the submissions. It was open to those submitted to release it themselves, but the vast majority of them remained secret. The only thing the government did was put out a what we heard report that it turns out offered up a pretty sanitized version of the criticism. It acknowledged the criticism to be sure, but uh, you only get a full feel for just how the extent of that criticism once you actually see the submissions, which as you say, only became available through access to information. Now, the government seems to be under the, the belief maybe that this is kind of a moot point since there's a, a whole new process now. They've, they set up this expert panel and they're going to be involved in con- consulting and reviewing all of this. But how relevant still is this first round of consultation and everything the government heard? It's extremely relevant uh, for at least a couple of reasons. One is, as we've just been talking about, the transparency issue. You know, this was a, a government that was initially elected and campaigned on on an open by default approach, one in which they really prioritized greater transparency. And to see that lack of transparency, because we should be clear, allowing or gaining access to documents via access to information is not the same as being transparent and proactively making it available. Uh, It's in many ways the exact opposite of it. It's only disclosing unless compelled to do so by law. So for one thing, I mean, I think it, it highlights a broken process to begin with. But for another, we should know that the consultation was based on what the government really did intend to do. In fact, they thought they would put this out as legislation. It forms the foundation not just of this issue, but the other issues that you highlighted, C-11 on online streaming and C-18 on online news. It's part of, I think, an entire package of how the government wants to approach Internet regulation. And while they may make some changes now that they have a new panel, it does still provide real insights into that overall thinking that I think exists within Canadian heritage about how they balance or not freedom of expression with other Internet rules. Yeah, and, and obviously, and I, I cited a couple of examples uh, of, of some of the criticism the government uh, received that was pretty significant. But, you know, beyond that, I mean, you, you expect criticism of anything any government's going to do. But on, on something like this and something this big, there really doesn't seem to be a lot of support for what the government's doing, even from organizations that this might ostensibly be in, in support of necessarily. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and you know, I don't think the government should be getting a, a whole lot of kudos or applause for saying that they're now willing to re-examine the issue in light of just how widespread the criticism was. I mean, the real question is, how did they ever get to that point to begin with? Not great that you actually recognize that almost everyone who took the time to submit thought that you were doing this wrong. And what's amazing is it's, of course, you know, many in the civil liberties community that were concerned. But beyond that, you had the platforms being very critical. And then you had the very groups, marginalized, vulnerable groups that the government said this was all about trying to protect and help and try to give them the space to be able to freely express online. And many of those groups said, hold on a second, this is causing or has the potential to cause an enormous amount of harm for us. So one might think that that level of, of criticism would, would give the government some pause. It, it doesn't seem like they have. What, what's been the impact of, of this process? Is the government taking heed of any of this, as far as you can tell? 
Well, they are. They have launched a, a new panel to take a look at some of these issues. So, um, so I, I think they certainly did recognize that the criticism was more extensive than they anticipated. I have to say that, you know, had it been limited largely to civil liberties groups and the internet platforms, I suspect they would have been full steam ahead. The fact that it was some of the groups that they thought would be congratulating them that were instead criticizing them is likely what gave them pause. But even though on that issue they said, well, we're, we're willing to take another look, and I guess it remains to be seen what the, the ultimate bill looks like, they are certainly full steam ahead on C11, which raises the issue of, regular, of treating user-generated content as a program subject mm-hmm. to potential regulation by the CRTC. They're full steam ahead on Bill C18, the online news bill, uh, that involves the prospect of mandated payments merely for just facilitating access to news, uh, which raises the possibility of effectively requiring payments for links or for indexing content. And so I think that in many respects, the same kind of thinking that permeated in that really faulty consultation can be found in these other bills as well. Right. And I mean, you know, these these are, are separate pieces of legislation and they, they do separate things, but there, there are a lot of common threads here, right? It's, it's you know, this, this ambition to regulate online content. Much of it, uh, as you note, is, is going to be, much of that power is going to be bestowed in, in the CRTC. It's, it's really unprecedented, I, I think, what, what we're doing here, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. And, and we should be clear that some of the kinds of provisions that are now found either in bills before the House of Commons or that the government was thinking about on online harms are either without precedent or to the extent to which there was precedent for them in other countries, it was more about what not to do rather than what to do. So regulating user-generated content, for example, in the way the government envisions in C11, no one, no one has seen fit to, to do it in that fashion, saying that merely facilitating access to news requires payment. No one has seen fit to do it that way. And on the online harms that attracted so much criticism, it was as if they took the very worst of what was taking place elsewhere and said, well, package it all together and say, this is our made in Canada solution. It, it, it really does boggle the mind. Indeed. Well, much more on all of this is mentioned. Michael Geist.ca, and we'll see where it all goes from here. But uh, we'll leave it there for now. Appreciate it, uh, as always, Michael. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks all for best. having me. Uh, Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa, Professor of Law uh, at the university as well. So Michael Geist.ca, and he's written more about uh, you know, what was in these documents, what this whole, as he says, this uh, debacle says about the government's Internet regulation plans. There's this three-headed monster, you could call it. The Online Streaming Act, Bill C-11, the Online News Bill C-18, and now the Online Safety Act, which has not yet been tabled as legislation. The government says it's forthcoming. They're sort of starting over with a new review slash consultation process. But based on what they heard the first time, you would think it would give them pause. You know, the whole idea of targeting uh, hate online, for example. When you've got the National Council of Canadian Muslims, that ostensibly you would be doing this, you know, in, in the name of groups that represent marginalized or, or visible minority communities in, in Canada for them to, to criticize what the government's doing. Again, in their words, that these plans could inadvertently result in one of the most significant assaults on marginalized and racialized communities in years. That maybe the government would take a step back. So far, they don't seem to be doing so. Welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you. So it was uh, the 14th of February. The prime minister announced that his government was going to be invoking the Federal Emergencies Act 
in order to deal with the ongoing protests in Ottawa and some of the blockades have been occurring at Canadian border crossings. Now, many of those blockades were resolved relatively quickly, uh, and it wasn't until the Emergency Act was invoked that uh, downtown Ottawa was finally cleared out of those convoys, those blockades that had been there for several weeks. Now, part of invoking the Federal Emergencies Act is a provision then that that decision be reviewed. The government had until today to call a public inquiry into all of this, and that is indeed what happened today. So the government has made it official. They're launching an independent public inquiry to investigate the use of the Emergencies Act. And it will be a wide-ranging review, looking at the circumstances that led to these protests and blockades, what was done prior to the Emergencies Act being invoked, what happened afterwards. And to maybe answer the question, was this all justified? Now, at some level, that's uh, inherently subjective. Canadians uh, have already come to their own conclusions on that. Some were supportive of this decision. Others were, were strongly opposed. But it's something that the government should always tread carefully on. And it's important, I think, that we hold the government to a high standard when these kinds of tools are invoked. Why was it necessary? And did it need to be done? So what kind of answer should we expect from this? It'll be February of next year when the judge tables his final report into all of this. So there's going to be a lot of ground that this inquiry covers. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on where we go from here, Dr. Michael Nesbitt joins us, associate professor of the Faculty of Law, University of Calgary, also a fellow with the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies and a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Professor Nesbitt, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Right. And I mean, this, this is part of the process, obviously, to have this, this uh, inquiry to really review and understand the decision. What, why, in your view, is, is this such an important component? Well, it's, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is just it's important to, when we have important events like this and reactions, uh, as any business would do, frankly, it's important to review your own reaction to what transpired and see if there's things you can do better. Right. So so one of the things that we talk about a lot in national security that Canada, frankly, could do better is what happens in the U.S. or the U.K. or even Australia a lot more frequently than here, which is to do sort of an evaluation of um, our responses to uh, serious events and how to improve them. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is this was built into the Emergencies Act, which was enacted in 1988, precisely because the Emergencies Act replaced our old War Measures Act, and because of the problems and abuses we saw Mm -hmm. during the 1970s and the FLQ crisis. Uh, So they wanted to make sure that with the new Emergencies Act, that there was a review, uh, transparency, and and to a degree, an accountability component that wasn't in existence under the previous regime. I mean, is is there any level of conflict here in in that, you know, the government made the decision to invoke the act, the government believes that they were fully justified in invoking the act, but they're launching this process to answer a question that in the government's mind has, has largely already been answered. Sure, yeah. And this this kind of stuff comes up all the time, mm-hmm. frankly, with respect to inquiries. So th- there's sort of some things that I like to look for in inquiries. Uh, in Canada, we tend to, it tends to be governed by the Inquiries Act, which this one will be. So that helps a little bit in terms of objectifying what will take place. But usually I will look for things like, will they have the money to actually proceed? Uh, And in this case, it sounds like they will. Uh, Who is the commissioner is another important one. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this case, we have a very well-respected bilingual justice with a long history of following the facts and uh, inquiring into all sorts of things sort of similar to this. So, uh, So no problem there. And then you look to the mandate itself. And as you you mentioned at the outset, the mandate is quite broad here. So 
um, that gives a lot of, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for an independent commissioner who has the money and the latitude to follow what they think is important and report on it. Right. And so, yeah, th- this will cover a lot of ground, which which is important, right, in terms of, you know, what, what led to these protests and blockades, what was done to deal with it both before and after, uh, you know, the, the Emergencies Act was invoked. So I, I, I'm really curious to learn more, especially about that, that point, right, why the government deemed it was necessary, what tools law enforcement had at its disposal prior to the Emergencies Act coming into play. As you look at all of this, what, what are you most interested in learning here? Yeah, it's it's well, it's the same thing as I imagine most people are, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's exactly what you've said. So it's um, you know, could could we have done something beforehand? Uh, what what could have been done? Uh, what was available? Was the government unjustified in resorting to the Emergencies Act? Uh, was there another way out of this? It, it really is. It's set up as a act of last resort. So, um, you know, you, you don't want to say, well, it worked, so therefore it was a good invocation, right? If, if right. something lesser uh, that had lesser powers uh, could have resolved the problem, then then that's how you want to see governments react to that. And so you want to see, you know, was that available? And, and if so, why weren't those routes taken? So those those will be some of the, the main things. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, and, and looking at the mandate, so, you know, the, the judge has been tasked partly with examining uh, as it says, the evolution and goals of the convoy and blockades, their leadership, organization, and participants. To what extent is all of that relevant in terms of why this movement came about or, or what it was they were after? And, and as we try to understand the situation, does does that still have some relevance, do you think? Well, I think it probably has relevance for the public, right, mm-hmm. in terms of understanding uh, who these people are, what the grievances were, how we're reacting to these sort of things, how we can we can prevent uh, blockades from shutting down borders and uh, large cities and infrastructure from making international news uh, look like we can't control parliament, that sort of thing. Yeah. But the flip side of that is, that, if you'll allow me, the, the parochial legal side for me is there are very specific legal thresholds that you must pass in order to invoke the Emergencies Act. And so the, the question for a lot of us lawyers has been along the lines of, was this a threat to national security that rose to the level of a national emergency? And so some of the things we'll be looking for there is they seem to have relied on, those are all defined terms under various acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll be looking for the justification, which frankly wasn't really provided publicly or wasn't totally clear to me publicly, uh, which was how the threat to national security, which they said was essentially terrorism or extremism, justified the invocation of the Emergencies Act by virtue of the fact that that threat, that threat in particular, must have led to a threat to the sovereignty of the country, to the lives of people, etc. And that's and a so big question. It is a bold statement, and I think one that wasn't taken up uh, a lot at the time. And so it's one where uh, a lot of us lawyers, anyways, it'll be a little parochial. I'm sure people have their own opinions about whether, you know, in general, politically, this was a good move. But but there is a legal threshold here, and those legal and thresholds are really important because it's important we don't, we don't uh, resort to something like the Emergencies Act lightly. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, I think there's an expectation here that, you know, that because it's a public inquiry, the Canadians see, you know, the, the documentation here, that even if that includes cabinet documents. But mm-hmm. there is still a provision that if something is deemed to be injurious, for example, to national security, uh, that its disclosure would be prevented. So as we attempt to to understand what the potential threat to national security was, 
you know, protecting national security could actually maybe be an obstacle to learning that? Yeah, one of the things that, that jumps out if you've studied uh, inquiries at national security in Canada is exactly what you've mentioned. And that is in something like the Arar inquiry, listeners might, might remember, mm-hmm. uh, th- that inquiry had specific language with respect to how privileged and confidential information could be received by the commissioner and how it could be done so in camera, right? So to, you both get the information, but ensure that you know, information that is top secret maybe doesn't just get out in the public immediately. Uh, and then how it can be provided to the public in a redacted or summarized fashion. So in other words, how we can, how the commissioner get this information and how they can send it, sort of provide us with an overview of it. That language is not in this mandate. And uh, as you can imagine, if this was a threat to the uh, security of Canada, which is the justification for this, then a lot of the information that will be relevant to get to the very understandings that you and I have been talking about will be associated with cabinet confidences, police documents, uh, intelligence from our spy agencies, and that sort of thing. So that, that is the one thing that really jumps out here, how that will be dealt with. All right, well, it's going to be very interesting to watch all of this unfold. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Professor Nesbitt, appreciate your insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. It was a pleasure. All the best. Uh, Dr. Michael Nesbitt, uh, University of Calgary Associate Professor, Faculty of Law, uh, fellow with the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies, as well as the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. So that's where we're at here, to go back and, and re-examine all of this. How did we get to that point? And was this justified? Now, there's that that broader public question about, was this the right or wrong decision? But as, as, you know, I guess points out that there's a very specific legal threshold for the government to invoke this. And so that's going to be put to the test here. It's not enough to just, you know, go before the public and say, you know, it's time to get tough. We're getting tough. We're going to put an end to this. And a lot of Canadians clearly said, sure, okay, good. But again, you're invoking the Emergencies Act and you need to specifically justify why you're invoking it. And the government laid that out, but didn't necessarily back it up with evidence. So that's what we need to see here. All right, welcome back. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Rob Breckenridge with you. Much more still to get to on the program. But uh, I want to take a look at uh, some of the latest numbers from Benebrith, Canada. And it shows that a very troubling trend in this country uh, got worse in 2021. This is the annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents in Canada. Found that uh, 2021 was another record-setting year for anti-Semitism in Canada. So why is that? What are we seeing? Uh, much more at B'nebrith.ca. But joining us on the line here this afternoon is uh, Michael Mostyn, uh, Chief Executive Officer with B'nebrith Canada. Michael, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, again, I mean, some really troubling statistics here in this latest audit. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised, uh, you know, that we've, we've seen this in, in recent years, that this trend's been pointing in this direction, but, but very troubling nonetheless. Let me get your initial impressions of, of what this found. Yeah, you're right, Rob. It's, it, it is troubling. Um, we have seen um, about a 7.2 increase year over year nationally on the numbers. Um, so about... Just shy of 2,800 uh, anti-Semitic incidents in, in 2021 across the country, and that's the sixth year in a row we've seen um, increases. Um, and it, it is troubling. One of the more troubling um, aspects of the report is that there was a, a serious increase 
in violent incidents in, in 2021. Um, you know, that's, that's the category we, we definitely don't want to see grow. Online hate still a problem. Um, and, you know, I wish I had some easy answers, but you're right, Rob. Uh, this is a trend uh, that we've been seeing, and we, we haven't seen anything to turn around this trend. So, unfortunately, it's been continuing to grow. Yeah, and, you know, I, I suspect a lot of this goes unreported, too, right? So maybe there, there's a lot more going on here than, than what's found in this report. I mean, Alberta was no exception. We saw an increase in uh, the overall total number of incidents in Alberta from 2020 to 2021. And you mentioned, you know, the violence uh, aspect of this. You know, at least in Alberta in 2020, there were zero reported acts of violence. We had five reported acts of violence, anti-Semitic violence in Alberta in 2021. So to see that number going up. That's really troubling. What, what are some of the examples of that that, that we heard about and, and especially were troubling from your perspective? Yeah, so, so in Alberta, uh, the violence that, um, you know, that we heard about, there was some violence in July and in November. Uh, in July, there was a, um, a pro-Palestinian rally taking place in Calgary, um, and there were some individuals holding signs and, and some chants, and they uh, violently harassed an individual, some of those... Um, some of those protesters, and in November, which was very disturbing, uh, again in Calgary, there was a, a visibly Jewish uh, man um, who was walking down the street in Calgary. He was pushed violently by an unknown person, who, who then ran off, and um, uh, the guy called him, a, you know, a, a dirty Jew. It was actually his words. So um, very concerning. In other parts of the country, uh, the massive increase that we saw was really around the month of May. Um, so people will probably recall that there was a, a conflict in Gaza between Hamas and Israel in the month of May. There were a lot of uh, protests taking place across the country, and we saw a lot of spillover um, in various regions across Canada, and, and quite a number of violent incidents spilled over uh, from that in the month of May. But, uh, but again, in Alberta, um, those violent incidents were, were in other months, um, even though one was a, uh, a rally. Uh, well, we talk about online hate, and, and I suppose that's a lot easier to, to document, uh, and, and we see a lot more of that as well. As this report notes, it's almost become a preferred method of targeting Jews, uh, you know, so the, the number of these incidents is, is well into the thousands. So what, what are we seeing online? Yeah, so o- online, I mean, I, I think we all know and we all spend enough time online, certainly during COVID times, yeah. uh, to see, you know, what, you know, what the temperature's like up there. Um, online's a problem. We did notice in, in certain parts of the country that was, there was a decrease in in-person harassment, which would make sense. 2020 was a year of lockdowns, and many of us were locked down uh, for quite a period of time, and uh, then people spent that time on their computers. So it would also make sense um, that there would be an increase in social media online harassment uh, to take place, and, and that, that's something that we've seen. Uh, you know, the government is has been, um, the federal government's been uh, trying to put forward a, uh, a bill to deal with online hate. Um, they, they've clearly recognized that it's an issue. Uh, most of the social media providers have, have also stated this is a major issue. Um, we don't have the answers yet on how to deal with it. Um, but, but I think certainly the, the start, starting point should be you know, trying to get back to some degree of civility and, 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 and treat one another with respect. But I think with the anonymity that comes with online behaviors, um, that's a, it's a really difficult one. 
Yeah, I think you're right about that. So, I mean, where, where do we even begin here? I mean, I guess, you know, the first step is, you know, ensuring that, you know, this is being tracked, that this is being reported, that these crimes are being investigated. Where do we go beyond that, though? Uh, well, to start off, uh, you made a comment before about underreporting. Uh, this report, by the way, is, is most certainly underreported. In fact, there were two major police forces that uh, didn't get their info into us yet mm-hmm. because uh, they themselves are going to be making um, their own announcements. So um, you're right, um, reporting um, and verifying, and we vet through all of our numbers. Uh, so uh, just because something gets reported to us doesn't mean it gets into the report. We need to verify that it actually took place. but. Most certainly there is a, uh, an under-reporting that's, that's taking place here. What do we do about it? Well, first of all, we have to treat you know, the, seri- the issue seriously. Jews in this country, and I, I don't know if everybody understands that, represent whatever number you're looking at, but 1%, 1.25% of the Canadian population. And in 2020, according to StatScan, about 63%, 63%, of uh, hate-motivated crimes that were based people where people were targeted because of their religion, that they were Jews. So, so there, it, it, there's a disproportionate um, amount of, of hatred, unfortunately, uh, on the Jewish community, and um, um, and and this is just something that um, has to be uh, addressed, and um, and it's downplayed sometimes. I don't think from the far right. I think we all recognize, you know, a swastika is a swastika and, and uh, you know, and white supremacists, and we all call that out. But sometimes on some of these university campuses um, where it comes down to the, uh, there's arguments of academic freedom and I'm just making a political commentary, what we've seen is that incitement when it comes to anti-Semitism can also at times flow from anti-Zionism, which most Jews the vast majority of Jews in Canada view themselves as Zionists. They believe in the Jewish state of Israel. Um, and, and we see sometimes violent expressions that flow out from incitement. That is something that we're going to have to grapple with in Canada uh, because, you know, we have a, a guaranteed right of peaceful protest in this country, and that needs to be treasured. But at the same time, we can't allow rallies to target minority groups in this country for hate. And, and there's got to be a, a better balancing act because um, we don't want to see numbers like this continue to increase year over year. Well, much more at benaybreath.ca. Michael, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rob. All the best. Uh, Michael Mostyn is Chief Executive Officer with Benebreth Canada. Uh, so they today released their annual audit of anti-Semitism in Canada. And it was another very troubling year in 2021. Another record-setting year uh, for anti-Semitic incidents in Canada. More as mentioned, benebreath.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.